God said. Amen. So, uh, so far in our sermon series this morning, uh, we have been uh, sharing together in speaking to the mountain, and uh, on April the 8th, the Sunday after Easter, we uh, considered the whole idea, the topic of why bother with the mountain, those mountains that we have in our lives, uh, taken from John chapter 4, where Jesus has the conversation with the Samaritan woman as well. Uh, last week, um, uh, Tom spoke with us, and, uh, and by the way, I'm so thankful that, that Tom was here. Aren't you thankful that uh, he was able to, to step into this place and share God's Word uh, with all of you while uh, I was away on vacation? So my, my thanks to Tom uh, for doing that. And he spoke um, how to move your mountain based upon uh, Matthew's Gospel. And so this morning we want to explore the traits that are involved in becoming a mountain uh, mover. So what I'm going to say today is a little bit of a paradox, um, because on the one hand, we need to move our mountains, and so that very much certainly appeals to our American sense of motivation and independence, and I can do this, I can take it on, but at the same time, we ourselves, apart from Jesus Christ, we have absolutely no power to move our mountains. It's like what Psalm uh, chapter 16 says, apart from you, O God, I have no good thing. Or you can read in John chapter 15 where Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And so we know that with God, all things are possible, but without him, we are going to struggle. So I'd like to take us through the traits that are necessary then to move our mountains in life. We all have them, don't we? Yes, I have them. You have them. And we remember that mountains are those seemingly impossible obstacles that seem to get in the way or prevent us from drawing closer to God or to Christ Jesus. So allow me to set the scene for us, uh, if you will, from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 8. We find ourselves in Capernaum. Capernaum is a small town on kind of the north central, northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee, and there's lots of history that's associated with this town. There have been people living in this town already for about a thousand years by the time that, that we come to uh, Jesus's conversation with the Roman uh, centurion. And it is the base camp, Capernaum, for Jesus's Galilean ministry. It is also the hometown, as we know, for Peter and his disciples. And as I uh, looked into uh, some of the backstory behind Matthew chapter 8, and I uh, looked at the name Capernaum, or Capernaum, as you perhaps would pronounce it in the original languages. Um, the name, I found, is very, very interesting, and I thought certainly it would be interesting for our 21st century postmodern culture, because the name Capernaum means the disorderly accumulation of objects. Now, I'm not quite sure how the town of Capernaum arrived at having the meaning associated with its town name, but it means the disorderly accumulation of objects, in other words, junk. 
Yeah? Okay. And to me, that sounded very much like our modern-day American garages. Yes? Or perhaps like our basements or attic spaces and... And and so if I could stretch the analogy with you a little bit this morning, many of us have mountains of junk. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Junk so bad, there is now a syndrome. And what's this? Syndromes are those things, those behavioral habits that we just can't seem to get out of no matter how hard we try. And I suppose that we could call those mountains as well too. Junk so bad, there's now syndromes called hoarding. How many of you have ever heard of hoarding? Yeah, I don't see like every hand going up. It's a, it's a pretty common word that is used. Yeah, People who can't seem to get rid of their junk. And it tends to pile up over time, and it can become an obstacle. So, what do we do at this wonderful time of the year? We do spring cleaning, right? I was doing some of that a little bit last week, and it's the ritual that we engage in of cleaning out one's garage or attic. Or wherever it is that you've got your your junk stored, you know, the sun starts shining and we become optimistic and we say, I'm going to take on that pile of junk and we start doing spring cleaning, yeah? So into this uh, disorderly accumulation of objects, as the name Capernaum suggests, comes Jesus perhaps with the approach of... I'm going to give Capernaum a spring cleaning. You ever think about that? That Jesus comes into our lives to give us a spring cleaning? Yeah, so when you uh, turn to the task of cleaning out your garage and you get all done, you say, oh, that looks mighty fine. I'm pleased with the progress. It looks great. The floor has been swept. Everything's been put away in the cabinets. The, The junk has been put in the wheelie bin. Ever think that Jesus undertakes a similar kind of work in our lives and he steps back and he says, wow, that looks really, really good. So I have a friend, and uh, my friend had a whole bunch of stuff in his garage, and uh, when I was visiting with my friend, he said, you know, I really got to do something about all this junk in my garage, and he says, you know, I've partially found an answer to my problem, and he says, I've just discovered uh, this company, and uh, if you dial 1-800-GOT-JUNK, there's this van that arrives to your house. He says, oh, it's great. He says, it, it's really wonderful. He says, all you do is, is take the, the got junk guys into your house, your basement, your garage, whatever, and you go, that, there, and you point to it, and they, they come along in their, in their beautiful little golf t-shirts with their baseball caps, and, and they grab it, and they take it, and problem solved. 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and it's gone. So how many of our obstacles in life or our obstacles to get closer to God occur just because we cannot bring ourselves to get rid of the junk in our lives? That is, there is a sense in which the accumulation of the junk in our lives is self-imposed. Yeah? Can I get an amen? I mean, did anybody else put that junk in your garage or, or was it you? 
Did you, did you put it in there? So we're responsible for the stuff that piles up. Not God. God's not responsible for all the, the stuff that piles up and accumulates in our lives year after year. And, and so we complain, life is too complicated. I can never reach my goals. But do we ever consider that we ourselves are the creators of all of that which gets in the way of God's Holy Spirit taking up His divine eternal broom and saying, today I'm going to clean your house. Yeah? Oh my goodness. So, the other piece of backstory was that there was a crisis in Capernaum. You see, sometimes people never change or they never come to faith until there's a crisis. You see, it's not sometimes when we see the light, but it's when we feel the heat, yeah? That we change, yeah? Sometimes we're very optimistic and say, oh, if I only had the light, I would change. But sometimes God uses the circumstances of our lives to turn up the heat. And then all of a sudden we say, i got to change that. Yeah? So the crisis of the Roman centurion was possibly going to be this. I'm going to lose the one that I love. He had this servant. The servant was awesome. And the Roman centurion said, you know what, I love this guy. He's so special to me in my heart, all that he does for me, and I just can't bear to lose him. Someone who is precious to me. It's the same thing that happens in John chapter 11 when Jesus comes along to raise Lazarus from the dead. And we find that, that, that Mary and Martha are, are anticipating, they're grieving the loss of their beloved Lazarus. And what does Jesus then say to Martha? He says, I am. Just like we were singing about this morning, the great I am. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, I am here in this moment. Don't, don't lose sight of that. And Jesus is here with us today. And so John chapter 11 is a whole chapter about change, about change, about what mountainous emotional debris that had accumulated in Martha's life that needed to be swept out. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to do that for you because I am the resurrection and the life. And when you taste the sweetness of the resurrection, change is going to happen. We will be born again, raised up with Him to new life. You see, Mary, in John chapter 11, she had undertaken that task. Why? How do we know that? Because she was sitting at the feet of Jesus ready to receive His teaching. In other words, she had taken care of the accumulation, the large mountain of obstacles within her life, and her heart was ready to receive. So the first trait to moving mountains is this. You've got to know what you want. Hmm? You've got to know what you want. You want the junk? You want the pile, the big mountain of stuff, you know? And the thing about mountains is this. The more, the more that you put, have you ever noticed this? The more that you put on the top, the larger the base becomes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So after a while, you find yourself walking around the circumference of the base, and you say, how on earth did this thing ever get so big? It's because you keep like adding stuff to the top. It keeps getting bigger and bigger all the time. So the Roman centurion, he glimpsed 
what his life would be like without his servant at his side. And he didn't like it at all. Oh, no. So if you're going to move the mountain, you've got to know what you're going to ask Jesus for. Did you get that? If you're going to move the mountain, you've got to know what you're going to ask Jesus for. It's like the question Jesus asked of the two blind men in Matthew chapter 20. He asked them, two blind men. They were kind of lying by the side of the road and Jesus walks by. And we're two blind men. Help us, help us. And Jesus walks over to them and says, what do you want me to do for you? What? What do you want me? I'm blind for goodness sakes. You know? And Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Well, yes. Because Jesus always wants to, us to ask Him for what we want. And we've got to be absolutely clear about that. So... It's not only a matter of what you want to have moved out of the way, like in the case of those two guys, their blindness, but it's why you want it moved out of the way. Why? Now, most people don't clean the junk out of their garages because they have no idea why they should. Right? We lose, we lose sight of that. Well, I'm here today to tell you that your garage is for your car. Okay? That's, why, that's the why behind why you have a garage. Yes? Okay? Now, most people allow obstacles to intimidate or slap them around in life because they've come to believe that obstacles are a part of life and they have no clue what to do with their lives if the obstacles or the mountains just Think for a moment if your obstacles were cleared out of your life. Whoa. Wow. Maybe some wonderful new things would begin to happen for me in my life if those obstacles were cleared out of the way. You see, not dealing with the obstacles is the essence of codependent behavior, isn't it? You see, so often the spouse of the gambler or the alcoholic or the person that's overeating becomes the enabler of the dependency itself. When someone threatens to clean out the garage, the enabler comes along and says, oh, no, you don't need to do that, and just piles on some more junk. Yeah? And the terrible thing about addiction is this. Life always stays the same. Just stays the same. Yeah? So enablers do not believe that the addict can fix him or herself. There are some people that you have in your life that do not believe that you have the wherewithal to fix your life. And you don't apart from Christ Jesus. So the centurion to today's gospel knew exactly what he wanted. Come and heal my servant. And he knew that he couldn't fix it apart from Jesus. And I like that. I think that's a wonderful way to live your life. Lord God, i got something here, and it's big, and it's getting in the way, and I know that I can't take care of it all by myself, so I am calling out to you. Yeah? So the mountain movers have got to know what they want from Jesus. And they also do not have to be religious. Hang on. That's the second trait of the mountain mover. They don't have to be religious, but they do have to recognize the power of Jesus. Yeah, amen, yeah. 
It's the same truth that we discovered two weeks ago in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. Religion itself can become a mountain that obfuscates truth or prevents God's power. I know. It seems irrational, doesn't it? The good news, the good news version of 2 Timothy 3.5 says that there are some people, they hold to an outward form of religion. Get this. Get this. Don't miss this. They hold to an outward form of religion, and yet they deny the power there. Oh, yeah. So what's the real power that's in play here? It's that the Roman centurion believed that Jesus and not any system of religion, yeah? Because if that was all that was needed to be able to take care of this problem, he would have called on his Roman gods, or he would have ran off to the temple in Jerusalem or whatever. But no, he thought this, this is too big for, for religion to solve this. And so he sought Jesus out to heal his sick servant. And the power that Jesus possesses is this. His word. What the centurion saw is that Jesus' word was authoritative. Yeah? Now, I'm moving into the heart of the message this morning. His word was authoritative. And the word for authority is used 102 times in the New Testament. But one translation that I found very interesting for the word authority can be rendered as jurisdiction. So what's a jurisdiction? Yeah? Jurisdictions are, are areas where someone has got power or authority, right? We know in the United States, we have states that have various jurisdictions, yes? For example, California and Colorado have different state laws, different jurisdictions do different things than the state of Ohio or Kentucky or Indiana, don't they? Yes, but hang on. You see, Jesus' authority has jurisdiction over your mountains. Jurisdiction over your mountains, yes? If He didn't, He couldn't ask us in His name, to move them. So we can move them because He has got the jurisdiction to be able to move. Isn't that exciting? I think that's amazing. But here's the thing to watch with authority. And it's been the question, i got to tell you. Now remember, we're in the heart of the message this morning. Yes, It's been the question that trips people up over and over again, time and time again. It's when they confuse the power of God with religion. Yeah? So here's the question. Who told you you could do that? Who told you you could do that? And the wrong answer is, my religion told me I could do that. That's the wrong answer. The right answer is, I can do that in the name of Jesus. Yes? So let, let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into this. You see, the postmodern chaotic world that we live in has effectively jettisoned authority. Well, what do I mean by that? Teachers, and we've got some of them in the congregation. You see, the authority of teachers has been removed a long time ago. It really, really has. You know, 
It's been taken away from doctors, but sorry, the insurance companies now run things. Yeah, they really, really do. And it's even been, can you believe it, authority has been taken out of the church. Yeah? Yes. Pastor, who said you could say that? Pastor, who said you could, you could make that decision, decide that? Who said, who said you could do that? Yeah? Who said? Elders, who said you could do that? Who said you could say that? So let's take the example of the two gentlemen in Starbucks, shall we? Yeah? They were sitting there. You've all, you all heard about this in the news. Yeah, they were sitting in Starbucks and they were waiting for a friend to arrive. And they ordered nothing and so they were asked to leave. And the firestorm in our centerless culture, of course, is by whose right or authority were they asked to leave? Whose? Does the manager have that right? Well, apparently not, is what we've learned, right? Do the police have that right? I think it's probably still hotly being debated. You see, where the world ends up is simply here. No one's got authority. Oh, yeah, that's the place that we now find ourselves in. So I came across another interesting feature in our postmodern culture. You're going to love this. It's called free-range parenting, yes? And you thought that free-ranging was just for chickens, right? Yeah? So what, what, what on earth is free-range parenting all about? Well, free-range parenting, it's... Um, because uh, Janet and I talked about this together when, when we came across this concept. When we were little, and, and perhaps some of you had the same experience, right? You, you know, when you got your homework done for the afternoon, you said, hey, I, I, I'm going to Harvey's, I'm going to Sally's, I, I'm, I'm going to Billy's, I'm going to Fred's, I'm, I, I'm going over to Sue, wherever, right? And, and out the door you went, and you kind of knew when dinner time was, and you came back, and so on and so forth. Now today, if you let that happen, you can get in trouble by the law. Because your child is being unattended, yes? So, for those of you that like to surf the internet, if that's your thing, go to freerangekids.com. Can you believe it? And there on their website it says, quote, Fighting the belief that our children are in constant danger from creeps, kidnapping, germs, grades, flashers, Frustration, failure, baby snatchers, bugs, bullies, men, sleepovers, and or the perils of non-organic food. Yeah? Those are all, you know, it's this movement that says, you know, kids ought to be able to, to free range. It says on their website, quote, children deserve some unsupervised time. Can you believe this culture that we're living in now? Actually, they have to, Utah is ahead because they have now passed legislation. I think they're the first state in the country to do this. They've passed legislation to say it's okay to allow your kids to free range. The parents aren't going to get busted for it. Absolutely amazing. So who allows a child to roam is the question. Parents? Schools? Social workers? The state legislatures? Who? Who allows that? 
So the message for us to celebrate is that while the world is wandering in the weeds trying to figure out who's got the authority or jurisdiction, the Bible declares, always has, always will, that God's Word has authority and jurisdiction. Amen. Amen. Thank you for the hand clap in the back. Psalm 16 and verse 6 says, the boundary lines, the jurisdiction has fallen for me in pleasant places. You see how that works? Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You see, Jesus is the order. Yeah, He's the center. He's the authority, the jurisdiction in a chaotic world. And the Roman centurion recognized this, but the centurion answered him, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof, but just simply say the word and my servant will be healed because you've got the jurisdiction. You've got the authority. The Roman centurion knew at a gut level what Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 says that Jill shared with us this morning. By faith we understand. It's by faith that we understand these, like the children this morning. What's the key you can't see? It's faith, yeah? In other words, everything, my Lord, dear sir, comes under your jurisdiction. Especially our mountains, yes? Mountain movers have to know what they want, and they don't have to be religious, and they have to have the faith And the faith is the third trait of a mountain mover. And this is where the book of Hebrews comes into play, where it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Hang on to that. Take that with you. I want you to take that with you. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever draws near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who who seek after him. So, does believing in that Jesus is Lord, does it have rewards? Does it? I hope it does. I really, really do, yeah. The word reward in Hebrew means this. Someone who pays your wages. Yeah? So to put it in economic terms, God is going to pay... This is economic terms. God is going to pay you for having faith. Yeah? Now, not literally, of course, yeah. You're not going to get like a, 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 a hand, you're not going to get a, 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 like money put into your hand like the prosperity preachers would have you believe, right? Yeah. But let's use the idea that is, that is embedded in this economic understanding. When you work, what's your expectation? Come on. You're going to get paid. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And if you didn't have that expectation, what would you do? You'd stay home. That's right, absolutely. You got it, Beth, for sure. So you bring a sense of expectancy to your work. If I'm going to work, I'm going to get paid, yeah? If you bring faith, expectancy to what you're asking of God, God is going to give you a payout. Yeah? God's going to be pleased. God's going to be pleased when we pray. When we pray weekly... And I don't mean doubly, I mean E-A. If we pray weekly, oh God, God, I, God, I know you're busy. And if you can just like spare me a couple of minutes, like, like here or, or there, you know, I, I'm trying to, you know, oh God. That's the kind of thinking that gets religious people thrown into outer darkness. No. 
faith. Devoid of expectation is not faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. And if you come to God, you've got to believe that He is. You seek Him diligently and He is a rewarder of people that do that. You see, if God is either too busy, which sometimes we think God is too busy, right? Can I get an amen? Can I get, can, you want to encourage the preacher this morning? Yeah, encourage my heart this morning. I need some encouragement here, my friends. If God is either too busy, doesn't care, or is unable, of course there's no sense of expectation. Yeah? Oh, let's not trouble God. He's too busy with Syria this week. Yeah? He's got more than enough to do. Hebrews 4.16 declares, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. Yeah? So that's exactly the sentiment that was on the mind of the Roman centurion that day. He said this, I'm going after Jesus. Have you ever said that? I want you to say it. If you haven't said it, you know, I'm going after Jesus. I'm going after Jesus. And I'm going to find Him. And when I do, I will ask Him to heal my servant. That's my ask. In other words, getting God to move the mountains in our lives requires that we do put forth the effort into pursuing the Lord. We've got to go after Him, my friends. And when we catch Him, we've got to, you've got to know. Now listen, now, if you go after the Lord and you catch Him, and he turns around and he says, yes, can I help you? Don't stand there and go... You've got to know what your ask is, my friends. Just like the Roman centurion did. Yeah? And Jesus marveled at his faith. Oh, yeah. You see, Israel was the repository of faith. And Jesus says, you know what? I haven't even found this kind of faith in all of Israel. And Jesus said it's a game changer. It changes everything. So will it take a crisis like it did for the centurion to so motivate us or to move our mountain? Yes, God can use crises in our lives. But it needn't wait for a mountain, yeah, in order for us to have faith in Him. All it takes is for us to tag God and say, Here's what I need. And you, God, you alone are the one who is able to move the mountain in my life. And I'm going to hang on to you until it changes, until that mountain is moved. So come on. Let's go home and clean out our garages, shall we? Let's, let's do that. Let's move some mountains. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.